And boom, we're back for another episode of AlphaCast. I'm Mike Winter, and I'm here as always with the noble and very much wise Dr. Bear Paul Lando. There you are, buddy. Oh, I like it. Getting uh, better every week. He's uh, sitting there back. I feel in... like I should reciprocate somehow, though. But well, you always get the mic first. The young and uh, beautiful uh, Mike Winter here with the flowing beard and gray. A little bit of gray there. I wouldn't use uh, beautiful, but that's all right. If you like that. We're all beautiful. We're all beautiful, deep, deep, deep inside. Uh, but yeah, everybody's given uh, James James some love already in the chat. We've got James True on today to go deep into a lot of different things that are dear to our hearts. Very excited about that. Uh, we'll bring him on in just a second. Uh, two weeks to Music and Sky, guys. Go to musicandsky.com. Get your ticket. We are going to sell out. It is going to be a beautiful event. You will want to be there. Make your way there. So go to musicandsky.com. Uh, what else is going on, Bear? Anything else for the community before we bring James on? No, I'd say uh, let's just get right into it here. Okay, let's do it. Uh, on this AlphaCast episode, James True discusses why what is true is moot. When beliefs and perceptions are the real game changers, James True has delved deeply into the engineered psyche of our species that is presently leading large swaths of the human collective in march step precariously close to the cliff's edge. An eclectic in the truest sense, <laughs> part author, poet, wildlife activist, and self-taught techie, whichever endeavor catches James' interest is most definitely guided by the cosmic muse, in James' provocative work, Blueprints for Mind Control, he accurately concludes awareness to be the only possible antidote for the induced Maya of the controllers. Be certain that we'll dissect the tools of the spellcraft trade, but central to our roundtable is that our mass trauma is a 100% perception-based ailment. Quote, I earned my bachelor's degree in philosophy slash religion while serving in the U.S. Navy as a sub-hunter. That alone is a long podcast. <laughs> Subhunter. Right. Wow. Um, after graduation, I worked as an art director in the newspaper business and published a syndicated cartoon strip. I'm a self-taught software engineer producing solutions for Autodesk, Cisco, <laughs> Cure Autism Now, EMC, Stanford University, Sun Microsystems, VMware, and the Weather Channel. Some of my code has been mentioned in Wired Magazine, and I co-authored a technical manual for video streaming servers. I have launched several software products over the years while pursuing commissions in outdoor sculpture. I've had working galleries in Asheville, Black Mountain, and Boone, and North Carolina. Uh, my commission art installations were seen at the Black Mountain Music Festival, Huloween, Electric Forest, the Love Burn, and Envisioned Festival, Costa Rica. I have a, a partner, uh, an ex-business partner who is a partner in that festival. That's great. Uh, in my hometown of uh, Beach Mountain, I served as education coordinator and later president of a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to wildlife rehabilitation. I was later appointed to my town's planning board and ran for, ran for town council. I am the chairperson for my county libertarian party, but my heart is in bioregionalism. You're here. My first book was released in October of 2018 called The Spell of Six Dragons. My second book, Blueprints of Mind Control, came out February of 2019. Uh, just in time, James, too, huh? Uh, my third book, The Technology of Belief, was released in the fall of 2019. 
Quantum Rapture was published in May 2020. Best Apocalypse Ever was published in May of 2020. Is that where um, David Avocado Wolf got that from? Because that's like one of his favorite uh, phrases, best apocalypse ever. Uh, I've been producing a live stream and host a dojo since 2019. A man of many talents, a true renaissance man, just like us. We love it, Bear Lando. It's going to be a fun one today. Yeah, I'm uh, greatly looking forward to this. James, uh, really good to make your acquaintance here. You know, as I was... Um doing my homework yesterday I got hooked into your videos right away I'm uh I'm uh can't wait to get back and and finish up your first video on the Mayan calendar and that has some juicy stuff we can talk about relative to the concept of time and things but I think what we're uh you know what we were talking about pre-show is that we we're going to talk about perceptions and beliefs mm -hmm. uh you know and just what the heck those things are and, uh, you know, I, I kind of I think you're preaching to the choir here today. You know, we have similar uh, perspectives on things and that, uh, you know, I was just uh, invited, very honored, uh, as a matter of fact, to be a speaker at Dr. Edith uh, Ubuntu Chan's Luminous Education uh, event. And uh, she has a wonderful uh, cast of speakers. And it's all about really rescuing the children from the um the indoctrination system and not just uh homeschooling or unschooling you know which is important but really helping them solidify that cosmic thread with who they really are so i'd encourage anybody to see dr edith's event there and mike why don't you uh while i think of it put uh her link in the show notes here so people can find it easy and actually but, yeah uh, that's such uh, Bear, real Go quick ahead. too, we're going to post your talk. I've just been so busy this week. We're going to post your talk and put it up on our channel. So Edith said we could okay. do that. So um, I will put that as a premiere that will either come, it'll be premiering tomorrow or Saturday uh, for that event. Okay, sounds good. So uh, James, I really don't know where to start here. You know, there's so many uh, good things I'd like to talk to you about. So maybe if we just sort of riff off the, the perceptions, beliefs, and and maybe uh, preface that with a little bit uh, about yourself that maybe we missed in your bio and uh, in the introduction there. But uh, thank you so much for making the time with uh, for us today. We really, really appreciate it. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. <clears throat> thank you both for having me on. Uh, that bio, I'm sorry that was so long. I should probably trim that down. I just have everything on there just so people sometimes people question when i say something why am i saying that and if there's one page that has everything i've ever touched or done it's just easier for people to kind of get the context of of where i'm coming from on that so but yeah when it comes to perceptions um i'm under the impression that reality is received through a singular point in our human body uh, I, I'm going to call this the pineal, but I'm not actually trying to say that it has to be the pineal, but I can, I can prove with, with what I consider to be very relevant information, uh, why you are not perceiving reality through your eyes, your nose, and your ears, but in fact, you're perceiving it through a central first eye, and that that first eye is then sending that information to your occipital lobe rendering something to then paint into your retinas, but only after passing through your amygdala where it gets permission from your body 
as something that it is capable of showing you without you freaking out, like completely freaking <laughs> out. And this brake and gas pedal is melanin and dopamine. Uh, I can show uh, reference uh, studies that show you that a melanin deficiency leads to blindness. I mean, a, a dopamine deficiency leads to blindness. And uh, people that have a melanin deficiency end up with schizophrenia. Why? Because reality itself is coming in unfiltered. And when it comes in unfiltered like that, it creates a shock to the system because the amygdala is shut down and is not able to pump the brakes on source reality as it comes in. I'm bringing this up now because I think it's the key to perception across the board. Why there is actually, I'd argue, no objective reality that we can ever really tangibly point to. Most of reality is going to be throttled by our appetite to accept it. And so one person will have a completely real, perfectly legitimate, uh, absolutely experiential, zetetic experience, and someone else will have a completely different, real, personal, zetetic experience from the same vista point. The reason why they're different is because the aperture, the lensing inside the head that focuses consciousness, is just either more dilated in another person uh, compared to, to the first person. And so you end up with what looks like two realities when in fact they're all coming in through the same kind of source channels. So maybe we'll, we'll kick off with that idea. Yeah. And, um, you know, Goethe and Steiner kind of went into that a lot where they talk about the dipoles of all the different sensory uh, organs and uh, with the eyes in particular, you know, after it comes through the the vectors that are created between the pituitary and the pineal, uh, you know, we have the incoming passive sort of sensory, which gets activated as toddlers start learning speech. And then they kind of lose connection. They talked about with the, the consciousness, uh, you know, inside that you're alluding to there that projects that back out and creates a reality that we see and uh, so we're all operating on, you know, uh, you know, one of two cylinders, according to their whole perspective. But but yeah, good stuff to talk about and really, uh, really interesting because their whole system also is to teach us how to go back to where we're not only sending, but we're receiving and, consci and, and uh, consciously sending out in a way where we're creating our reality and more of a, an aware state rather than just think it's happening to us. Yeah, we'd have to be creating that because if you just look at the simple math, that as your sensories, as your uh, sensory input on the tip of your fingers, as your body grows, it's taking longer for that signal to pass from the tip of your finger all the way up into your brain and then process it as you've been touched. What I'm suggesting is, is that there's a first source, a, a initial primal source of information that comes in first. And then we are experiencing the uh, simulation of, of, of touching things because it's allowing us to map strategically where in reality certain things are. If it was running the way that traditional medicine thinks, we would have a lot more sync issues, whereas we're growing older, our nerves, our, our, our signals are not coming in with a timestamp. When my toe is hit, it doesn't report to the central processor, hey, at 10649864281124 milliseconds, I received a hit on this nerve. That information's not there. 
which is why I think it's much more practical. And if you look at any network, how any kind of network system works, a system that's made up of all these conglomerate uh, autonomous organizations that have to work together, you notice right away that if there's not a central processor, a central station that's able to at least time clock these stimulus responses, that it would be impossible for your body having such a diverse network of sensory input to be able to even shuffle and reorder these sensory inputs back into a tangible timeline that actually shows you which one came first or second, which is again why this it's really better to call it the first eye. I'm not trying to be a stickler. You can call it third eye. But if we were to really reapply this definition and call it the first eye, we'd understand that our retinas are Plato's cave that literally we send the signals down into Plato's cave to paint them onto the wall where we're broadcasting shadows and showing us not necessarily what source reality is, but what our body is allowing us to visualize as source reality. And I think most of this comes back to that fear of losing the pilot, much like a fainting goat will be startled and physically be uh, brought into shock. They do not have the amygdala regulating systems as complex as we do, which are absolutely necessary to ensure that we don't enter into a shock, which the body still does, by the way. We still have instances where if you fall into a cold pool of water, you could lose the movement of your arms and legs. It's a very similar kind of situation. The fidelity volume on your sensory input is so high and so sensitive that it creates a very dangerous spot if we were to allow unfiltered messages to come in. We'd be living in clip all the time, which is a term from playing amplifiers. You'd be living in clip and not actually be able to process reality for what it is. Hey, James, um, I love this. And I love the Plato's cave analogy of the retinas. Are you familiar with Veda Austin's work and structured water and everything she's doing on this sort of kind of quantum level with our relationship to water? I can't say how I would know how Veda's work relates to what we're talking about. So I, please I will enlighten me. Sure. So there was a study recently, and I don't know how long ago this was, uh, in Russia, where they took individuals where they put goggles over their eyes and they sent them messages of, of what to look at, or, or they had them actually look at something and then put the goggles over their eyes. I'd have to double check how they were doing that. And they were taking images of the eyes and they were actually seeing those images in the fluid in their eyes, in the structured water in their eyes wow. of what wow. the message is sending from, the, from what you're talking about from the lobe. Yeah. So there's some interplay here going on, I believe with water and the fluids from the from uh, the pineal because we know there is a fluid in there a mm -hmm. plasma like fluid and in fact in the early 20th century in the late 19th century there was a whole like underground scene of people extracting those trying to extract the pineal in these quote unquote elite classes and doing things with them trying to re-inject it into them trying to figure out how they could kind of take this like sacred pine cone fluid and yeah. use it to increase their consciousness black magic, all this stuff. So it is interesting that there is some sort of on the quantum level, because what Veda has shown is it's instantaneous uh, 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 information transfer, or at least with Emoto yeah. and all of this. So there's some sort of relationship here, I believe, with the waters above, below, that connecting us all, that um, sort, sort of transcendentally uh, uh, allow us to, to have what you're talking about without the physical nerve function of the signal being sent. So I'll have to find that research well 
from Russia that shows that, but that was fascinating to me that they were actually able to capture those images on in the structured water of the retina of the yeah, eyeball. That, that makes sense. It, it sounds like blind sight, which is the yeah. phenomenon where someone can lose their optic nerve. Uh, it's been severed, the connection to their eyeball. And in a lab, you can show them a physical picture of someone's face and ask the person in the chair, is this person happy or sad? Are they smiling or are they, do they have a, an angry face on? And the person with no retinal cord <laughs> can actually see this. It's a principle called blindsight. And it turns out that this gift is better. Monkeys have a better time at this, picking this up automatically. And I think it comes back to this intuition, which I think was what really what Veda is pointing to is that the, the waters being painted on is what's really happening because the intuition, the first eye, knows exactly what's in the room at all times. But keep in mind, your neocortex is as much as a half a second behind what you are actually perceiving in real time reality, which kind of proves even more what I mean by this first eye. It would absolutely be a necessity for you to survive if you were uh, running on a half a second delay because you needed all your systems to sync up and have this thing, you'd be dead. Instead, we have this intuitive uh, Pond's brain-esque, the reptilian that I know we love to hate, but I think we should learn to love. This reptilian is giving us all the information that we need. And if we can trust it more, which is why the people in the blindside experiment when they're asked, hey, tell me what's on the photograph, their first reaction is, I don't know. I don't have a fucking eye. Why are you telling me that? And only when they're pushed, only when they're encouraged to guess, they start to notice that they guess right, that they're tapping back into their intuition. Why? Because they're not distracted by the visual stimulus of what they think is reality now. And so they have no other choice but to go deep within and use the force and basically determine what is in the room, even though they can't see it. So Bear, you yeah. mentioned Dr. Edith. And, you you mentioned Dr. Yeah. Edith beginning. Her her child, uh, since the age of three or four, has been doing blindfolded studying and reading. He can read blindfolded. And there's a whole group of children that are doing this. There was just a mainstream little documentary online we shared of 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 a a lady who's teaching this in the UK, where they're putting blindfolds on and they're literally learning how to read. Wow. So <laughs> it's yeah. So the, um, I, just to finish up on water, you know, water is a transmitting utility from more the astral plane, which we could say is synonymous with intuition. And uh, between the, the pituitary in front, pineal behind, there's a third ventricle of the brain that carries the cerebral spinal fluid, one of five ventricles. And that is the, the again, the, the transmitting device that uh, carries the signals between the two and creates the, the vector, the pole. And then, um, you know, if you look at all the different senses of the body, they all play on the same thing. You have the neurosensory, uh, the neurological pole from the outside that receives signals by way of the air element more. And, uh, you know, like you could, uh, it's the same with the eyes and then it's transmitted to the water in the eyes. And then, uh, you know, then the dipole is created. Uh, for instance, with the ears, you have the little hairs inside the, the inner ear there that pick up the signals outside. And then that uh, uh, transmits to the water inside the uh, inner ear. 
And then that goes directly to the astral plane, which is actually where we hear things. It's really where we see things. And then, uh, you know, I would go along with where James was going. I, I don't know if you're going here, but then everything we think we see and hear and touch out here is really a mirage because it's all really happening on those subtle planes yeah. in the first place. Yeah, it's place. rendered. It's 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 yeah. not even you could call it a mirage, but it's more friendly than that even because it's it's yeah. what we render to our monitor, kind of like a video card, where you're sending that you, you've already done the processing. All that you need to do is just draw a bunch of triangles, and it turns out mm -hmm. that inside the inner ear, inside the inner ear, the parts that never see light, you have these melanocytes that secrete melanin, and melanin is a liquid crystal electrical interface. It absorbs power. Mm -hmm and it releases power. And so what, what I think is happening is, is that the reason why I said earlier, we don't have to call it the pineal, because I think probably what the first eye is, is something closer to the entire third ventricle and the CSF, the entire cavity, which means you have a really mm -hmm. long uh, squid, upside down squid looking antenna that has horns in your head. Your third ventricle actually has horns. And that that entire liquid interface the reason why that liquid is there is because it's running on the same principle as a sonar dome runs on a submarine. There's a perturbation happening inside the pineal. The reason why the pineal is suspended is because it can't be hanging or touching on something. It has to physically hang. It's hanging outside the blood vein barrier, which if that's a real thing, <laughs> which means that there's like an electrical yeah. fence that it's outside of, which is very important. Why? Because it's sitting or, or this salt microphone which is really a sand crystals is what the pineal is. It's just a salt microphone is immersed in that liquid. And that liquid is perturbating and the perturbations are causing the salt, the, the uh, sand, the brain sand to push up against itself, which is a physioelectric phenomenon, which is causing those signals to give you everything much like a record is able to play the most detailed music you can imagine with nothing more than plastic grooves and a, and a needle, your pineal is doing the same thing. It's then routing that information and it's sending it out to your senses later, your, your sound and your sight. Your smell is actually outside of this. Your smell is bypassing all of the neocortex avenues for this. And I have to admit, I'm still fascinated by how the smell interacts with these other senses and how they tie it all in together. But basically, we are operating with sort of like a kill switch where we're wandering around the world constantly releasing DMT that would murder us. And we're constantly saying, I'm still alive. I'm still alive. I'm still alive. Don't kill me. Don't kill me. And then the second we let go, this process renders itself and we are crystallized into our final death. We are rendered. Our final lessons are rendered into our salt. We're able to even communicate probably quantumly with our family to give them that last lesson. Like, do not stick your head inside the lion's mouth. Don't do it. You know, whatever that last lesson is, there's even an opportunity to transmit that, which suggests very strongly that not only are we living a half a second in the future, but it's very possible that we could be living minutes, hours, days into the future, but we're slowly unrolling the story to ourselves, right? by turning the source information on and just displaying it with a longer delay. This gives us the opportunity to have a life plan, to create a soul matrix of tasks or whatever we want. 
and to be able to utilize the the fate as something more than fate, but it's like a legitimate itinerary <laughs> of things that we know are going to happen that then we can place ourselves either in the line of fire or avoiding the line of fire, depending on what our destiny is or what our final solution is, which is, you know, more inherent in as far as like what we're here to do, that kind of thing. Yeah. So it's, it's, yeah I'd <laughs> like to go uh, deeper into the timeline with you. That's, that's a lot of fun. And uh, just to finish up, you know, you were talking about the the lower brain there. You know, there's a whole uh, resonance factor that, uh, let's just say, larger in ourselves that some people equate with, uh, you know, the uh, constellations, 12 constellations. And you're talking about the, you know, the horns in the third ventricle there. Well, that's Aries, the ram, you know, which just happens to convey the the resonance, uh, you know, that is the the you know, that, uh, that eye uh, created by that dipole, but then that is quickly transmitted to the lower brain, which is uh, what under Taurus, uh, which then transmits all those messages to all the other organisms, uh, you know, kind of embryologically as it unfolds through the whole system there. So uh, you can go deep into all the things that are going on, you know, every time we just get a little snapshot outside with what we think we're seeing with our eyes. And uh, but but uh, go on a little bit more if you want to elaborate. Well, I, on, I was uh, just gonna say factor. I was just gonna say it's like we're running our own radio show with the with the delay. So yeah. it's like a, with yeah, the exactly. call-in delay. Yeah. In, in fact, um, another proof for this is the whole principle of albinism. You have uh, someone's body who thinks it has melanin, who thinks it can secrete melanin whose body opens up the receptors and go, let's squirt some melanin. And the body has no idea that actually nothing's coming out. It just doesn't come out. So your body thinks that it's <laughs> throttling. It thinks it's putting the brake on when really uh, you're experiencing reality at 90 miles an hour with your face outside the windshield. This is why there's such a high uh, degree of schizophrenia. It's also a, a reason why so many shamans are come from albino. Uh, most African uh, albinos are considered shaman right away. And it comes back to this idea that they do not have the ability to turn life off. It's just simply not there. And so they end up seeing things that you and I don't see. Perfect example of this is crystal meth. And anyone with schizophrenia that starts to talk about uh, group hallucinations the definition of hallucination, technically by definition, would be a discombobulated sensory input that has no matching to itself. However, in modern science, we report these hallucinations as, yeah, I hallucinated that Dave came in and said, Dave's not here, man, and I closed the door. It's like this very <laughs> timeline, temporal, living kind of a situation. One. Two, people are having shared hallucinations. Uh, two crystal meth people could be in the same room. Jerry Marzinski talks a lot about this, could be in the same room and have the exact same vision of a dark shadowy figure with red eyes. This dark shadowy figure with red eyes is the exact same apparition that's seen on Chickamauga battlefield, where you have people that have uh, endured massive trauma and they're able to see something that the normal quote, quote, the normie system could not see why does the normie not see it because the normie's like i'm not going to render that black shadow figure with red eyes in the room are you kidding i got to pick up the kids at four i'm going to freak out i don't have time for that and so your body has the luxury of simply not rendering something that's too uncomfortable this idea guys is explaining why 
all of the problems we're having <laughs> with uh, medical truth, with government truth, all of these things come back to this aperture consciousness. That it's not that you're surrounded by people that are in denial. You're surrounded by people that lack the capacity to absorb and listen to what reality is actually telling them. So what do they do? They turn the volume down and they make it amenable. This is really what it is. It's a competition for that volume knob to see how many of us actually want to see what's really happening versus how many of us just want this comfort movement, right? This isn't really a truth movement. It's really a comfort movement. And when you watch how people are reacting to what's happening, you're seeing that 90% of the loyalty is going to be based on what makes them comfortable, not what makes it true. This is not a condemnation, by the way. I'm explaining to you the beautiful parts of how humanity works. I don't consider this a flaw. <laughs> I think it's a very natural, important thing that we have built into our system. It's just being exploited right now because people understand how consciousness works and how easy it is simply to say two steps forward, wait 15 minutes, two steps forward wait 15 minutes. That's how you hypnotize the reptilian brain. And so unleashing these kinds of things are very easy to do when you're dealing with a populace that doesn't even know the, what the word aperture even means, right? I mean, some people, when I say that word, they instantly just think horrible, awful things about it. They're not ready for these kinds of truths yet because their aperture <laughs> doesn't have the exercise to be subjected to this kinds of things. Anytime trauma and terror are exposed to you in a way you're working out a muscle called your aperture. You're learning how to see things that are harder to see, which is why most people that are clued in the sort of the Canaanites of history, the ones that have like been, been through this broken path. Those are the ones that typically seem to see reality more clearly for what it is, which is why they tend to exploit it more too, because they're looking at a bear's picnic where thousands of people are just laying in the grass pretending that everything's totally fine when this predator is actually uh, on the ground doing what nature is supposed to do, which is uh, making us find vitriol or die as a result. So on the melanin tip, what's the relationship? Because melanin to me almost seems like a human chlorophyll type of thing with in a relationship with the sun. So yeah, how does that... So how does that, what, what's your idea there in terms of, um, you know, taking that information in processing it? I know it yeah. connects to ATP so it's a generation circuit. and everything. Yeah. yeah. Melanin is, is absorbing the circuitry of source. If we start to break down what sunlight really is, I think in a way you would just look at, when you look at the sun, you're staring directly down the barrel of a fiber optic cable right? Like the cable that comes into your house from, from the outside, it's long and round. But if you're staring straight down the middle, it's this one circular point with a single point in the middle. That's our data feed. The sun is our data feed. It's giving us that source. The melanin is acting as an absorber of the strength of that source. So it's a polarizing filter is another way you could look at it, that we polarize the light that comes into us by absorbing less source from it. One of the reasons why we have weather, one of the reasons why we have shade built into this beautiful place that we call home, I think it's because it's cluing us off that, hey, if things get intense, you could just set by the light, man. Sometimes the light's really bright. <laughs> it will burn, the truth will burn you, right? All the symbolism is there. We just have to realize that that light isn't just light, it's information. 
And that's really what's helped with this sixth sun, this transition into the, into the sixth sun. We've moved from a yellow sun to a white sun. If you look at the sunspots, they totally stopped for several years, although just recently they've come back. Those sunspots you could look at as this sort of melanin. It's sort of like the environment's way of trying to keep the information from burning us too much. But at the same time, there's like a drip emitter process where the greenhouse guy is slowly turning up the drip emitters of source light because it needs us to grow. So as giants, so as Nephilim, so as whatever primordial protoplast of man we had required a low level kind of light. This is considered first sun in Aztec culture, the half sun where only the giants who ate acorns could live in this world. It was a primal world. Then you had a carnal phase where all the giants were just having sex with everything. Why they were seeding this land. They were unwrapping a genetic arc. They were unwrapping it into a humanity. They were spawning a terrain with a new crop of humanity that had this wisdom information stored in the ark. This is the story of Quetzalcoatl and Maze. This is the story of Noah in the ark. This is the story of the preserver of, of uh, Uqdapishtu. Um, all these stories are pointing to this same, the Tower of Babel. All of these things are pointing to this same idea that there's a genetic code that's unwrapped 6,000, 12,000 years past if you're lucky. Then there's a reset, the soil is turned and a new crop is brought in through some sort of arc, arc of the Baphomet, whatever you want to call it, where this new genetic crop is unleashed and they are grown in a vitriol garden where we learn to discern. We learn to perceive the truth in light, regardless of how uncomfortable it is. That seems to be the whole purpose of this place. They're harvesting discerning consciousness. That's what we are. And that's what ends up uh, being created in this world, no matter how much we try and run away from it. There seems to be this absolute no way around it. You have to discern your environment or else you die. And wow. uh, cultivated fear, which is the main tool, the controllers is the largest impediment. Can you... Um, Maybe just give us a cliff notes uh, since you mentioned Mayans and uh, uh, about the fifth sun and exactly uh, what they're talking about there. Yeah, mostly what I've been talking about is the Aztec calendar, which is uh, actually oh, okay. not that different than Maya calendar. They're actually pretty similar, mm -hmm. but but they run on it's a dual cycle of the solar wheel and then Venus, too. So the Aztecs mm -hmm. have this 52 year cycle where they uh, every 52 years they pick a volunteer and they pull his heart out and they build a fire in his chest. And then they use that chest fire to relight all the fires of everyone else. It's a fascinating ritual. I've got a lot of live stream about it, but the cliff notes on it for this, for this discussion is, is that the Aztecs really only had a capacity, a hard drive space to render 87,210 days, 52 years. And at the end of that 52 years, the slate of the mind had not been elaborated enough to where it could really uh, comfortably perceive time longer than that. So what I'm suggesting in this Cliff Notes kind of summary here is that the Aztecs are showing us how our capacity to even uh, a crystal palace, right? Your mind is a crystal palace that as we evolve, we gain capacitance to build this crystal palace. And there was a time when we only needed about a 6,000 year long calendar 
because that was the capacity. We were a 32 gigabyte hard drive, right? <laughs> and then we, uh, as consciousness grew, as we gained more calories, as we learned to exploit uh, resources more, meaning farming and all the other things, our capacitance was able to grow. Therefore, our aperture was able to change and we had to develop new calendars. But what's fascinating about the Mayan and the Aztec calendar is that they were so tied to Venus and the sun that the calendar was not just really about the sun. It was really about how the Venus and the sun complement each other in this very long 52-year dance that's broken up into these smaller dances of 260 days for Venus and then the 360 for, for us. I see 360 for us because Aztec had this free five days of just like voodoo days <laughs> where just like crazy wild stuff could happen uh, because those days didn't even count. So it was sort of like a, a publisher's clearinghouse where everyone could just kind of uh, absolve themselves and reset till the next time. This is why every two, 52 years for five days, all the fires went out. Everything was thrown away inside your home. Uh, every single piece of civilization that was connected to light had to be extinguished for this period uh, to wait for this new era to begin. I think literally it was the only capacitance the, the mind palace had to even perceive this. It would be no different than if all of a sudden Mike had to stop because we've run out of recording space on his hard drive and he just needs to refragment, right? That during that time we'd have to shut down, we'd have to wait for that five-day new fire process to build and then go on. I think in a lot of ways, the Mayans and the Aztecs were, were basically just doing that same thing. They're showing you how we, the, the modern man, grew from this rudimentary uh, first sun into all these other different suns. The first sun is that giant sun. Uh, everyone was killed by jaguars. The second sun was uh, uh, the, the uh, turkey, the turkey sun. We were learning how to build and elaborate our ego, right? The third son, I mean, sorry, the second son was the monkey son. Forgive me. We were learning about pleasure and emotions, even about putting ourselves in comfortable states. If you think about what it's like to be comfortable, that's actually a pretty complex thing, a pretty complex uh, equilibrium that you would want your body to, to find and want is comfort. So that's that second son, the monkey son. The third son is this ego son, the turkey son, where we learn about, uh, and I believe ego is a good word, by the way. I think what's holding us down the most is we attack the ego when literally the ego is you. It's your heart. It's the I am. But in the third son, we were learning about ego in a good way. From that third son, we understood the uh, reverence. We, un we understood uh, sanctity. These are really complex things that, that we had to build first. Entering and, into and James, real sun, quick, finally, <clears throat> James, can you tie these suns into the ages too? Do they kind of link up to the traditional ages that we talk about with the zodiac or no? So I tried to do that. And it's funny on the live stream, I even confessed to my audience that I'd love to be able to tell you that this fits the great processions in a perfect mm -hmm. way, but it actually really doesn't. Mm -hmm. Technically, the two processions should be flipped, meaning that um, our Pisces, our Piscean uh, fourth sun. Uh, should have been reversed with the Aquarian uh, uh, fifth sun. And so it, it doesn't quite work in that context, which is why I, I think it's more about consciousness. I believe that Aztecs are just simply giving you the rest of the story. I'm talking about if you take the biblical stories, they're telling you some pretty big clues about how consciousness grew the way it did. And I believe the Aztecs are giving you the missing pieces to that, not just the Aztecs, by the way. 
Um, it's, it's really most of Native American history has this figure of the horned serpent, has this white Quetzalcoatl type uh, essence that comes in. It's very much the same Christ, Christos kind of a yep. thing, which is really just the emergence of this consciousness, this well, Christ consciousness. And they talk coming. about sun and Venus, sun being the sun, the son of God, the male principle, Venus being the feminine principle, yeah. sexuality coming together in the creative force in the same way as Adam and Eve, the dipole, the positive, the negative. Yes. The right, the uh, yeah. so it's all synchro, synchro working together in the same way. That way, it's very interesting, absolutely. In fact, and, if you and, um, yeah, go ahead. No, I was just going to comment. You know, Steiner uh talks about uh, uh, the constellations going in two different directions at the same time, which uh, you know, in my thought process is creating a toroidal actually, but mm -hmm. the way we usually think of things uh, ending in Pisces, beginning in Aries is a more an embryological unfoldment of our being here, you know, on this level, whereas uh, going in the opposite direction is more the evolution of humanity through the different eras and, uh, you know, more the, the macro look as far as each one pertaining to an age where we're developing, you know, a, a certain attribute of ourselves, just like you're describing with the five sons. Yeah, and the truth is always in the room, which is why mm -hmm. the civilization stories of a great flood fit. Some of these deluges, the reset, were uh, a sun flood, a flooding of sun, flooding of wind, a flooding of earthquake. In fact, the sixth is supposed to be an earthquake. And when you were dealing with a low capacity consciousness, something that's not able to interpret things like an EMP, for example, uh, you have no choice but just to call it a flood. The flood is the lowest archetype that fits the word where everything came in was just reset. Everything, all of our history past, all of the cuneiform writing made out of clay. Oh, shit, that water's going to ruin that, right? Everything's just gone. The reason why everything's gone is because our consciousness ran out of space. It ran maybe out that's of space the to store it. <laughs> Maybe that's the mud flood is the cuneiform yeah. mud flood. <laughs> yeah, th this is exactly, I, I think it is. It's a mythological memory. This is what I mean by the truth is always in the room. The truth is always here, but we lack the aperture to put it in the right costume, and it takes us a long time to where we finally catch up. Right now, if you consider, I can tell you that no matter how many times humanity gets advanced, I can just, I can tell you this. You, you can find this out too through a thought experiment. No matter how many times humanity advances, there will come a time when paper will no longer serve the purposes of storing the information. It will become too primitive, the same clay, the way clay did. Eventually that will learn, lead to a magnetic storage system, a hard drive system. Eventually the magnetic storage system will become obsolete and we will have to store things in light. It's literally where we're at right now. All of our uh, SD RAM, all of our fast RAM, all of our tablets are running off of light. It's a silicone on or off, right? Melanin or no melanin is really what's happening on the computer level at all points in time. In fact, in the future, I think we're going to find that computer circuitry is actually utilizing melanin. It's actually a perfect uh, avenue and vehicle for this. It's able to absorb a large amount of energy without overheating, 
which is crucial for your eyes and your ears, but is also crucial for this uh, computer thing. If you look far enough ahead, you will see that every single civilization will be prone to the same form of devastation, some sort of an EMP. The EMP would eliminate all optical storage, all magnetic storage, any kind of silicone storage at all would all be wiped out instantly. That EMP doesn't have to be man-made. The EMP could come from a number of different ways. And if your civilization lacked the crystal palace to understand about storage and magnetics and all these other things, you'd have no choice but to call that truth in the room to render it as a flood. And I think that what we're looking at is just as any greenhouse has a capacity if things get too tall, there's a system in place, either by a, a farmer or by the greenhouse itself, where it's time to trim. It's time to cut bait, uh, flip the soil, let things sit for a while, and bring in a new crop. That's just happening here is all. It's just hard for us to accept. And then that brings in the role of the controllers, which you're describing there. It gets precariously close to some of the things going on now so that uh, information is stored to serve certain vested interests and actually stored in our own neurology with the use of graphene and hydrogels and, yeah. and things of that yeah. nature. Well, additionally, um, I hate a lot of people don't like where I'm about to go with this, but I'm going to say it. Uh, I think that the controllers are doing most of us a favor. When I say that is, is most people do not want to have the responsibility of owning a fully open aperture. It's a very expensive process. You're looking at truth that is very difficult to absorb. And so really what you're watching, we could say that everyone's being enslaved by the controllers, but I just like to be more honest. I think really what's happening is people are terrified about reality, source reality, and are looking for a slavery position to place themselves into so they can weather the storm. And when I say so that they can weather the storm, I mean this with the utmost of compassion. I, I don't think that any of us, including the three of us in this room, are capable of rendering true 100% source reality without it burning like a bitch. And so <laughs> it's really not right for me to even say, well, they're wrong for wanting to adjust their aperture, but I'm right for wanting to do the same. In my opinion, the controllers are simply utilizing energy that's purposely been shed and thrown down from people that should own their own energy, but instead they want someone else to own it because it allows their aperture to pucker and shrink and they don't have to see the world as something that they have so much influence over. It becomes a nice uh, cubbyhole to hide, which is why this system is so perfect, because no matter how long you hide, the light is going to find you <laughs> and you will have no choice but to either accept the truth or or to look for a convenient way out. And this is, I think, a lot of what we're calling germ theory now It's my opinion that most of germ theory is based on this cycling of the sun. When the sun turns up its aperture and you're looking at a white sun now, the human body has full autonomy and it looks for a way out. And the way that it finds the way out is through something like the Spanish flu, some sort of disease that it can use sort of like when you're in a movie theater and you can't handle the movie anymore. No matter what's playing on the movie, you always see this little red exit door at the left and the right. And that at any point in time, you can go there and take that exit door out. That exit door needs to be unblocked. It needs to be clear. It needs to be shame free. And so you end up with a pandemic 
that turns this hero mentality into dying, which allows the secretion of people that are finding the sixth son too intense to exit from this system and say, I've had enough. So which points, in my opinion, more to this place being more about consent than we could ever really realize that because your aperture is sensing these things in real time well before your neocortex is, it actually has a lot more volition than we think. We're just not comfortable with that amount of volition, which is why our neo neocortex paints this other thing on top of it. And sometimes what it paints is, I'm a slave. There's nothing I can do. The controllers are coming to kill me. That, that's a comfort state is what I'm trying to say. I'm not trying to say this world's easy. Please don't hear me saying that at all. It's hard. But I'm trying to say that this is a natural inflammatory reaction that our system has, our immune system has to what's happening outside around us. And it's pretty obvious we're all making decisions and those, uh, you know, options that the, the so-called controllers are giving us are a convenient portal out of here if you aren't ready for it. And, uh, you know, there's a real physiological accommodation that has to occur as well, uh, awareness being light. Um, that light, when it comes through a nervous system, you know, through the neural pathways, it has uh, resistance rather than, uh, you know, being in its pure original state, which is as a superconductor with no resistance. Um, that resistance will create a lot of friction if that awareness comes in too quickly. So it's a real preservation mechanism. I think uh, I know I witnessed it myself. It's like, okay, enough, enough, enough. Yeah. You, you kind of have to, like you say, you know, uh, you know, work both pedals at the same time to, you know, be on it, keep methodically bringing in and, you know, as much as you can at a particular time, but uh, yeah, to pretend that, oh yeah, just let the whole light come in at once. No, it would fry you. Yeah, it would. And it does. And a lot mm -hmm. of times when you're dealing with someone who's had tra trauma therapy, the reason why it's hard, first of all, it's impossible to help them on a couch. You're going to need to bring them back to the dilation that they felt in the moment that trauma was there. And then to allow them to express autonomy while they're that dilated. I look at every experience as a percentage of dilation and that you and I, most of us are dilation junkies. We just don't admit it. The things that we call <laughs> joyful are times when mm -hmm. we were most dilated, when our aperture was fully open and we were comfortable absorbing more source light. So we have this deeper mm -hmm. appetite to absorb source as much as possible. At the same time, when we turn the channels to one, it's like, it's hot, it's hot, it burns, it burns, turn it down. So we're constantly working this muscle to absorb more light, to learn to drink from the light the contents that it has, right? It's a deeper form of absorption, which you could map and argue is why we're really all here. We're learning how to uh, sense and see all of the information and we can only do that slowly. That's why the trauma patient, <clears throat> if you want to fix someone's trauma, how do you bring them back to the dilation if their dilation came without consent? If someone was violated in some way, if someone was pushed out of uh, a helicopter with a parachute or whatever, you can imagine how much harder it would be for the therapist to bring them back to that dilation when they didn't have consent the whole time.
So if you think about that scene in uh, Clockwork Orange, where the guy was strapped down to the chair and his eyes were forced open, a lot of reality is doing that to us, that we are simply exposed to what we think is too much. But here's the thing. We think it's too much because we're we're constrict literally vasoconstricting our polyvagus is constricting and it's squeezing all of our organs at the same time which causes us to store the hippocampus stores that as a memory of this event which means whenever we try and go back the first thing the polyvagal does is oh you want to go back there well let me just squeeze just right and then you can remember <laughs> and that now you're trying to remember through all this squeeze kind of a thing so we learn the truth of, of how we're able to work on ourselves is to seek this dilation, to find these events, and to create an environment where we can reach that same state, yet still feeling this kind of comfort. There are certain therapies that are, that are touching on this right now. Uh, many of them are interactive. A lot of wilderness camps, wilderness programs will actually utilize therapy like this without even knowing it. But I think that once we really tap into what this dilation thing is all about, we'll be able to unlock all the PTSD. If you think about what the war PTSD is doing, how the how the world are you going to bring that soldier back on a couch to where that an IUD goes off, right? But you can simulate these things. You can create even virtual reality interfaces for this where you relive things, which might creep out some of your audience. But I just want you to know, I've seen car accident victims. I've worked on projects like this where we've recreated the car accident inside of a virtual space purely so this person can learn to be more comfortable in a car. So they're able to experience the car crash with enough of the same kind of reality in the simulation where it's able to bring them back to that space. And because the VR itself is, is kind of locking them out of all other realities except for that, it makes those opportunities uh, closer, closer to find where you can meet the, mm -hmm. the patient with the dilation and with their autonomy at the same time. I think that's really what healing yeah. is all about. Yeah. You know, in uh, my clinical work years back, I did ways using the nervous system to um, recall and understanding, uh, you know, for me, it was understanding that these are all electrical recordings. So it's not that they go anywhere. Um, you know, they're, they're always registered there. And uh, some of us found ways to access that using the neurology itself to bring those in present time. But of course, you also had to have a way to assess that it, it was properly in sequence because if somebody wasn't ready to relive that, that could actually be dangerous. But uh, that absolutely was the key to a lot of people healing their physical body. Uh, you know, by going through those. And of course, we're not just call, talking about call, uh, recalling a car accident or something. We're talking about traumas for yeah. all time. You know, it does not even, um, you know, related to this particular embodiment necessarily. And, uh, you know, the one thing um, I concluded that maybe if the one thing only, you know, in all my years of work in medicine was that uh, illness, as we think of it, is nothing more than a belief system and a perception. So uh, the therapies were all about, uh, you know, changing that by changing the neurological environment so that people could look at things through a different lens. Absolutely. This is kind of the heart of my book, Technology of Belief. 
And to add this uh, aperture dilation to it, it was just building on that same work that uh, fundamentally every single medical issue that's ever happening is going to at some point in time come into your neocortex. The, the, there's a lower part of your neocortex. It's not a physical part. It's a neurological conglomerate controls this placebic effect. It's uh, the same part that controls lying. When your brain lies to yourself, the same parts are being uh, functioned when you start to heal yourself too. And we simply do not understand just how powerful this effect is. In fact, I would argue that there would be no way for us to ever have a truly double-blind study where we have isolated <laughs> and eliminated the placebo effect from a pharmacological study. It's simply impossible. Even the janitor who works in that pharmaceutical place wants the pharmaceutical company to succeed. There is a belief system that's built into the sterility of the lab to how much expensive, how expensive was this piece of equipment? How expensive was this piece of equipment? All those things are vibrating. All that information is being absorbed by this placebic entity. And this placebic entity is not limited to a single person. We know this, that the placebic entity is its own zeitgeist and that the entire zeitgeist is either giving us permission collectively to heal ourselves or, which is what it's more doing, to absolutely insist, I do not want this much power over my own healing. Can you please give me some sort of petroleum pill and tell me that all the medicine is in there and that we agreed a long time ago to say, yes, this satisfies my desire to not have too much power and my desire to be healed. Therefore, I will choose Rockefeller medicine because it is giving me the petroleum lie I need to unlock my own body's power, but only under a control condition where I can blame and give credit to someone else for delivering that medicine to me. This is absolute bait and switch, and we're pulling this off on ourselves. It's a somatic hoodwink is, is what's happening right now. That's uh, yeah, that's brilliant. Uh, that is exactly what all of us are doing all the time. And the, the uh, belief that we can have a, a consciousness that conceives of a particular study, including designing all the parameters of the study, and then that same consciousness pretending that it's not in a room and affecting it. And then after the fact, you get somebody else in the same belief system to agree with you. So that we call that peer review. Uh, yeah, that's that's been one of my hot buttons for a, a real long time. But it's what makes the whole system work. And and you're absolutely right. All of us do that all the time, just pretending that we don't have anything to do that with the design of our experience in the first place. Which is a huge clue about just how much power mm -hmm. we're sitting on. I mean, nothing mm -hmm. would would tell you more. That if, if you're watching yourself out and out lie to yourself about how powerful you are, it could only be because of how intimidating that power is for you to wield. The responsibility that comes with this, this is why a lot of people don't understand my work because they're like, James, why would anyone choose to be a slave? And you don't understand how much responsibility comes with power. The moment you understand that you influence everything around you you turn into a choreographed calligraphy artist who is expressing himself in the purest, most authentic way at all times because you want your environment to thrive and you know you will destroy your environment by checking out. And this kind of 24-7 watch, no one wants that. 
no one wants to stand on watch that much. It takes too much time and attention. I think this is what this uh, idea of these Hopi rainbow people that are to come, I think that's what they're really talking about. If you think about that your pores themselves are emitting and receiving light, that that's really what this rainbow child is all about. The coat of many colors is the auric field that's always there, but you can only see when you would choose to render someone's aura by opening your compassion to them. And this is why it proves again that the reality is painted in the retinas. Your aura is not actually around your body as much as it's in my retinas that I've painted around you because my compassion has come in and tickled you and touched you in all the places to figure out exactly who it is. And that compassion comes back and says, hey, this person's aura looks like this. And so it renders it to us. It's no different than a dog who sees in black and white but processes color on top of that visual cue. Uh, we do the same thing with auras, but until we are ready, until we are fully Aquarian, only some of us are perceiving those things. And it's taking longer for the rest of us to get on board because we're just building up the courage to pick up the weight, to put that power backpack on and start walking around like we own the place because we do. I posted a, so, uh, uh, speaking ahead, of tra trauma, I posted a pretty funny meme uh, last night on our Instagram where there's a lady sitting on a couch with a Freudian type uh, therapist and she says basically in the bubble trauma oh you mean the reason why I'm so effing hilarious and really that's where comedy comes from like look at some of the greatest comedians they had the worst childhood right so yeah. I bring this up because it's this like ability to transmute the trauma into comedy into humor which is inherently human um, yeah. And to to use that as fuel for uh, what makes us so dynamic. And these are actually our power ups. Really, the trauma is just like the gold coins that are out there for Mario to pick up along your game. If you can find that trauma and, and transmute it, right, then you powered up more than you could have if you just never would have had that trauma at all. Which comes back into this idea that there's so much consent built into this place. It's amazing because even when something bad happens to us that we feel had nothing to do with us at all, it's really a golden opportunity to power the fuck up in most times. Sometimes it's too hard and we can't power up. Absolutely. Of course. But so many times we can, we do, and we will, or we miss the opportunity. And what do we do? We spend the rest of the time denying that the opportunity was even there. We, we embrace our sickness. This is why when you go into a hospital, it's important that they strip you of your sovereign field. This is why you're wearing a, a paper gown with the, the cut cut down the back. That cut has <laughs> to make you feel that your sovereignty is open, that you are not volitionally in charge of your immune system right now. And I hope that you can see why so many people would actually want that crutch because when they look at what yielding an immune system really means, it's just simply too much. It's just, it's just too many things for them to consider right now, which is really exactly what's happening because the myocardial wall, the outer shell, the ego of the heart is being uh, removed and attacked to create this hive linking, the ability for the hive to form, I believe is a very natural thing. And that there are many people in the world who've decided, not only do I not want to be autonomous, I also don't want to die. I like this idea of joining a collective hive. 
And even that is a volitional choice. Even that is someone's free will deciding what they want in this world. It's just hard for maybe you and me, I don't mean to speak for you guys, but it's hard for us to absorb and see someone do that and consider that as natural or healthy or good for them. But this is why we really have to have full respect for the amount of sovereignty that each of us are given. Each of us has the power to enslave our entire genetic line, and we have the power to liberate our entire genetic line. And it's really important that we respect that going into this sixth sun as we're watching all these crazy, crazy things happen because they're just going to be turned up. Smart cities are going to hive up more. The, the immune system is necessary for that hive to work. It's important that no one actually has their own immune system, that it has to be a collective entity. And so that's necessary for this next stage of human, which is going to be interesting to see. I don't fully uh, heard, heard, it like. <laughs> heard immunity. Yeah, <laughs> they just throw it out there, all those terms, yeah. right? Um, yeah. Well, it is interesting. There is a dichotomy here at play with the idea of sovereignty, which is being your own king, which is being responsible for your own uh, your own kingdom, right? Uh, which comes with great responsibility with that power of being your own king or queen. But also this idea, I'm thinking of when you were talking about the becoming, uh, getting overtaken by the power of the light, right? I was thinking of the uh, Marvel movie, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy with the Power Stone at the end where they where one person can't hold on to the power stone alone without them ripping them apart. But when they join hands, they're able then to uh, basically use the power of the community of each other to then wield that power. So there is great power in community and us working yeah. together, right? But what they have done is they've inverted that and they've they've created that hive mind sort of mentality where you aren't sovereign, where you're, you're giving that away, where really, and this is where this could potentially, this conversation could eventually go to Cordal, because I know you're familiar with Cordal, mm -hmm. but the idea of of having your sovereignty in play and then connecting to the network. So yeah. being the powerful node of, of full responsibility of everything in your life and in your realm and in your kingdom, and now connecting to the, those other powerful nodes. And that's mm -hmm. how the reality then stabilizes and becomes really this like heaven on earth sort of concept, in my opinion. Really, really well said. If you look at uh, my dad fell for the Gulf of Tonkin. He decided oh we got to go fucking fix those guys <laughs> and so he went over to that war and he fell for that hive right he found it more comfortable to be inside the hive of the marines to say this is who i am i'm not my own person i'm i'm this i'm a marine i'm an accountant i'm whatever it is you're watching that happen right now you're watching the temptation to say hey you don't have to be sovereign you could just join the hive we're accepting applications right now and it's equal opportunity employer and, uh, you know, whatever. There's certain things that come with that. You're going to have to lose your uh, identity. You're going to have to be fluid. You're going to have to be uh, polygenderous to where you can mutate to whatever's needed. This is exactly how a beehive works. You know that, right? <laughs> the, the drones come in and say, hey, queen, do you want me to, to grow a schlong or do you want me to go collect honey? You tell me <laughs> what to do. And the queen's like, I did bequeath you or this. I bequeath you or that. It's only the bees that develop these white eyes. It's white eyes. There's the Quetzalcoatl again. The bees that develop the white eyes, they leave the hive. They're like, screw this place. I'm rogue. You guys are nuts. I've had enough of you. And that, that we're just watching that as above, so below thing now. And what's more important is that all these people that are joining the smart city that will fall into that and need that and suckle on that are having their own hero's journey, just like my dad. 
My dad needed to have that ability to define himself as a Marine, to be completely let down, to have my mom leave him, to have all the violence, to have all the things that happened to him in his past, you know, uh, happen because genetically it was building this uh, uh, transfer matrix that I was able to download. I was able to download. My dad gave me all that. He said, look at how I fucked this up and look at how I fixed this and look how awesome I was here and look how horrible I was here. So I'm able to build off of that. And these same people that are in this hive, they have these genetics and we have to trust those genetics. We have to trust their ability to fuck up. This is really what it comes down to. We have to trust each other's ability to screw up their own lives in horrible, horrible ways. And once we do that, we'll see that there's a, a Joseph Campbell hero's journey happening there where they will have their same fall and they will have the greater rise than any of us could ever even imagine because they're the ones that crawled themselves out of the smart city and they're pulling all these cords out of them and they're rebuilding their myocardial <laughs> wall when you and I were just planting carrots the whole time and, you know, living large and playing guitar. Do you see what I'm saying? So there's like a balancing act where even when you find equilibrium, the ones in vitriol are having this uh, adrenaline injected into them to grow even more, to, to catch up, so to speak. And so I, I think that's really what's happening uh, across the board. We used to see that all the time in the 60s. People were seeking communal living. And of course, uh, seldom did the, the members uh, really come with a full set of tools or a sense of self-awareness uh, yep. uh, or self-reliance. They were always uh, going there to fill some personal needs and it never ended well. And then a lot of those folks that were so enlightened joining the communes back then just turned into yuppies. And yeah. they're the ones that are going out and getting the jab and everything right now in my generation. Yeah. You know, just totally it's so asleep. sad watching yeah. food co-ops yeah. so desperately kiss the ass of this agenda has been one yeah. of the hardest things to, oh, to yeah. swallow and accept. Isn't that all amazing? The, all, all the little mom and pop health stores, all the crunchy granola yeah. health stores are all like triple masked. And if I can argue, this is why I talk about ego so much, despite all the pushback I get from it. I believe that us rejecting the ego is a really uh, uh, clever, brilliant scapegoat to where we can abandon our power in public and, and people give us praise for it. So if you go shit on your ego all the time, if you talk about how crappy and horrible your ego is and how it's destroying everything around you, really what you're doing is you're abandoning yourself in front of someone else and they're giving you praise for it. They're like, oh, it's so great. You're getting rid of your ego. That's important. And when you look at who fell for this thing first, it's people with no ego. It's people that spent decades insinuating that the ego was the problem, that you having this idea of the I am, literally the Greek for ego means I am. It means I exist. And that we've decided a long time ago that the problem is you have this thing in you that wants to exist. And if you shut that off, if you destroy that ego, you can join the hive, man. And everything's going to be okay, man. Everything's going to be great. And we're just watching that unfold right now. Again, it's another hero's journey, another opportunity for some massive, massive growth. And a lot of us are taking it. I am really proud of humanity right now. I can't say for all of them, but so many of us are doing so well right now in rendering what's actually happening, kind of waking up a little bit more and really understanding what, what, what's going on. It, it's, it's a lot more optimistic than I thought it was going to be two years ago when, when, I, when this whole thing started to fall. I, I, I got to say, James, too, I'm, I'm on... 
I'm on that same level. And I know Bear is, you know, somewhat, but this like idea of this great awakening, I know this gets thrown a lot around a lot, but I really am seeing this thanks to things like the internet, thanks to shows like this. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Uh, for instance, I was reading a Charles Eisenstein Substack this morning. He was just speaking at a Kansas regenerative farming talk over the weekend. He was talking about cowboys, literally cowboys talking about their Kundalini. Uh, guys nice. in uh, cowboy hats and boots talking about uh, grounding, taking their shoes off and grounding. And he was blown away. And it was a very positive story about how, like, we're talking about ranchers in middle America talking about esoteric Eastern philosophy. So this was not I happening. Have, uh, <laughs> Go ahead. Man. Yeah. No, I was just going to say the same thing. I have amazing conversations with the least likely people these days. You know, somebody comes up here to help me fix something and somebody that I knew from years past that I'd never dare, you know, get into certain, uh, you know, subject matter. And all of a sudden they're having I am conversations. <laughs> and I'm like, whoa, what happened to him? You know, so, yeah, there's there's obviously a shift and there's a much bigger cycle and we're being bombarded cosmically with information that is coming in, you know. And then, of course, you see some people rejecting it because it is too much, too much responsibility. So which brings us uh, to the, you know, this is a, uh, I love these conversations and some people, you know, uh, maybe not familiar with certain terminologies and, and maybe uh, wanting to get too intellectual about it. I would argue that it has nothing to do with intellectual or concepts or what you think, you know, on that level, it's something happening on a whole different thing. So James, what would, uh, what would you prescribe for people just that are really trying to get in touch, uh, you know, open that aperture and don't know all the right buzzwords, haven't read all the right books and things. Uh, what would your advice to them be? I think it really um, really comes down to uh, flow state. I think that mm-hmm. uh, all intrinsic truth will be found through the seeking of authenticity in your bones. You, you, you find a certain rhythm in your life and that rhythm uh, creates a cavitation that just leads to to more you, and when you can really tap in and find that flow state, I think that that you're you're already on your way, and most of the time you'll find that you're already there. However, we like to offload energy a lot. I believe that we are human collectors of energy, and that sometimes we collect too much energy, and it intimidates us. It's very you see this behavior when someone gives you a compliment. Someone deserves that compliment. You compliment them. They deserved it. And what do they do? They're like, well, I don't deserve this or I don't. They're they're telling you I've collected too much energy. I don't feel comfortable. It makes me feel abundant. And I feel selfish when I have this much abundance and everyone else is around me. You see, because we all shit on our egos and give each other credit and high fives for shitting on our egos. I now have to wander around with a gas tank that's just this much gas in it. That that's what makes me a good person is having this much gas. And so when I come to a stoplight and I see an old lady crossing the street, I'm freaking out. Why? Because I'm almost out of gas. And here I am idling, waiting for this lady who's taking for freaking ever to cross the street. That's what low ego does. It puts you in this state of, I got to get my next fix. I got to get my next fix. I got to get my next fix. And so we end up treating each other the way we treat each other now. This real fake inauthentic kind of gooey nice thing all the time when really what we need from each other is authenticity right 
So I, if we can learn to turn our definition of ego around to realize that the more gas you have in your tank, the calmer you will be at the red light. When the light turns green to yellow, you are not in a hurry to jump through it because you've got plenty of gas. Not only that, if someone is stalled on the side of the road, it is no big deal for you to stop and to tap them off. It's no problem at all. This is a different kind of world. It's not an energy world based on scarcity, which is that egoic world from before. The fifth sun world was based on energy is scarce. Sixth world is based on you are the energy. And the scarcity of that energy will come solely because you vented it all away. You spit it all out. You are a collector. You are a miner. It's building inside of you. How you hold your posture determines how much energy you collect from this place. How you treat others determines how much energy you share and exchange. So when we change our relationship to the ego, we find this myocardial us again. We find who we truly are and uh, a tribe of one, I call this concept. When you understand you're a tribe of one, you have community. You were no longer seeking community for sustainment. You were seeking community for something else. You're seeking it for witness. And when we understand what witness truly is, there's a terrain of a world, an entire uh, universe that's built on the terrain of witness, not physicality. And as we start to tap in and understand what this witness world looks like, this witness terrain looks like, we see, in my opinion, what reality truly is, a neurological conglomerate of consciousness that is connected, but also has the ability to have its own experience. It's a hollow deck within a shared hollow deck. All of us have this sort of imagineering machine that we place and really what's going to happen, what's going to determine how well our holodeck is functioning is, is going to be solely based on the amount of calories that we have to render it. Those calories are energy calories. And it's your ego, it's your well-being, it's your state of mind, it's your flow state, it's how deserving you feel. Whether or not you deserve to enjoy the moment right now is really what haunts most of us. Most of us will yeah. find this moment and they will look at it as an opportunity to deny themselves because they know if they can castigate and take away their energy as some sort of punishment, they feel a little better. They feel less arrogant. They feel less intimidated. They feel less like people are watching them saying, why do you have so much energy? What are you doing with that ego? You need to get rid of that. So it's a, it's a, a different state. It's a different invitation and so many of us are taking it. Thank God so many of us are taking it. So this new world is, is I think, a whole other universe that's built purely on witness consciousness, where someone famous, if you, if you understand this witness thing correctly, someone famous like Bill Gates is technically like a, a vista where there's like a view, sort of like a brow view. What I mean is, is all of us know Bill Gates because all of us can see that witness from the same, from our space, wherever we are. And so this witness uh, world has a map to it. It has a, a legitimate terrain and texture to it. And that we really haven't uh, uh, looked at the true nature of reality until we understand this 
consciousness realm, right? It's a realm of nodes connected to nodes, connected to nodes, connected to nodes. And it doesn't look like this world. It feels more like I am. It feels more like this egoic existence. And it, it's, it's a completely different plane altogether that doesn't involve time or space, right? It's something much more profound. And in electrical terms, it's called a capacitor. And I believe that's the role that we play. It's gathering energy so that that energy can be redistributed or, or transmute, you know, uh, one thing to another thing. Uh, back in the day, you know, we used to call it the retrieval of spirit. And the healing process was always about identifying all the leaks in your life, all the places where you're giving away your energy, you're literally retrieving your spirit in the process. So, um, yeah, and, and you know, you host a, a martial arts dojo, I, I saw there in your bio, and the first thing in martial arts you learn is to gather momentum by building your energy reserves with physical practices, with spiritual practices. And then if you are in a combative situation, you also learn to just meet out the perfect amount of energy you need to accomplish something at a certain time without giving it all away. So there's this constant, even when you're using energy to be very economical in its yeah. use. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The dojo that I run is purely energy work. It's not a martial mm -hmm. arts dojo at all. It, well, it is in the sense mm -hmm. of its energy work, but it is based on exactly what you're talking about. And, and yeah. our main tenet is, is compassion is not consent. Most people believe that in order to show compassion for someone, they have to agree with them in some way. And that's just simply not the case. That's a really old school objective world kind of a thinking where you're pretending that there's only one reality and all of us are just have a fucked up view of it. I, I don't think that's actually what reality truly is. Mm -hmm. When we can compassionate someone, what we're really doing is we're no longer losing energy to not understanding them. The feeling of going, what is that guy on about is a loss of energy. I am losing the electrons that I collected when I'm looking at someone and I'm not understanding who or what they are, as I give them compassion, I'm literally pouring my plasma. I'm creating a simulation of them in my crystal palace, and I'm touching them with my feelers to paint the most accurate picture I can of them. That doesn't require that I agree with them or not agree with them. But when I do have a full compassion matrix built of them, I'm no longer in danger. They no longer provide me with any threat. They no longer drain me anymore. I'm completely in touch with what their motivation is, why they're there, who they're there. And most importantly, this is the biggie, most importantly, I can see how if I have the exact same electrical appetite as they did, I would choose exactly the same things that they're choosing now. This is the biggie because we like to paint villains. We like to say, well, no, technology is the enemy or Klaus is the enemy or Bill Gates is the enemy or, or the government's the enemy. And I'm telling you, you have no enemies when you are completely inside your compassion and it is not consent. You simply understand every threat in the room so much to where it is no longer a threat. And this is the thing that I think most of us miss when it comes to doing our spiritual work. 
because most of us believe that it comes through humility. It comes from sacrificing our ego. It comes from abandoning our principles to find cohesion when exactly the opposite, that by centering yourself deeper in your authenticity, you are raising everyone else around you. Why? Because they're smelling this prana economy, this energy thermodynamic equation that's inside of you that says, I am a tribe of one and I will compassionate the fuck out of you. So there's nothing you can do to hurt me. <laughs> it's a completely different way yeah. of looking at reality. Mm -hmm. I think. It's active. Uh, compassion is active versus sympathy, which is right. So that's the, the kind of making that differentiation. I love all this. I think it's amazing, James, on how you're kind of bridging a lot of these concepts with sort of where we're going, right, in this new world. And I, two questions. One, do you see that there's like a bifurcation happening where because everything is an opt-in, everything is free will-based, everything is consent in terms of how we interact with, there are no villains out there, it's how we do on the inside. So are people that are deciding to not embrace their true sovereignty, are they bifurcating into this other reality while with a different sun, let's say? And then the sixth sun reality is going this way, or do you think it's everybody always together? Or am I even asking the right question? No, it's there? a great, great question. And uh, I don't mean to go back to the Bible, but I really think the Bible tells you <laughs> exactly what happens. Because if you look at the book of Revelation, the book of Relation, Revelation actually explains what happens to the hive people. The ones that are chosen in Revelation are purchased from the machine, right? So they are people that are fully sold on the matrix of the machine itself. And they are purchased from the machine for one purpose, because they will praise Lord forever. And I want you to picture that even after 72 jabs, even after five boosters, even after 116 jabs, there will be people that have simply gone all in on believing in this machine on believing in this hive, and they will become this different kind of product. I don't mean product to like dehumanize someone, but what I mean is, is that they've entered into a different destiny. Not everyone here is meant to finish this world sovereign. Many of us are here to say, I would like an opportunity to see if I want sovereignty, and here we are. And some of us just aren't going to want it. It's just simply not going to be our style. And the compassionarian in you will understand that and see that throughout history that this having making sovereignty a choice exactly requires that there be an exit not to do it. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a choice. So I think what you're looking at is that the smart cities build. They will become more and more inclusive. They won't really have a choice. That will become its own corporate city-state, right? It'll be a corporatocracy that's just in Atlanta. As soon as you hit Marietta, boom, now you've entered into this other place. And that that place will simply eat itself alive. And that I'm not going to say whether that place will thrive or do horrible in the future, because I think to do that is to have a, a, a judgment about my own destiny as being the better destiny. But I do believe that when you read Revelations, it's telling you that there is a filtering system that happens. And at the top of the filter is the cream. The cream are the ones that will worship the machine for return. Doesn't matter what the machine does to them. It doesn't matter what lie they're told. It doesn't matter what cosmology they're sold. It doesn't matter what postulates 
they're convinced about medicine. They will literally believe whatever they're regurgitated to with such a loyalty that you and I have to say, I'm impressed that we have to even become impressed with just how cuckable they are. We had no idea you could be that much of a cuck, but damn, I'm impressed. And literally, we will be <laughs> impressed by that. It will be a force of nature that we will not be able to compete with. We will never imagine how we could do ourselves that way. That's the top of Revelation, right? The middle of Revelation, Revelation only has two options. Revelation says you can either choose to be the cream or you can choose to burn in hell forever and to recreate this whole thing and come out again. It doesn't tell you about the third choice. And the reason why it doesn't tell you about the third choice is because sovereignty could never be a choice. There's no way that you could ask someone a multiple question, say, would you choose one of these, <laughs> being a slave, burning in hell, or being sovereign? That giving a sovereign person a multiple choice question isn't sovereignty. You'd need a filtering system where the person finds their way out despite there never being a sign that says, hey, if you're the kind of guy that regurgitates and reads signs, you can come over here. That's never going to work with sovereignty. So in a way, the sovereign ones are the ones that are not capable of being ground. When you grind the coffee beans, there's certain little stones in there that no matter how much you grind, they're not going to get softer. They're simply done. They are sovereign. They're completely who they are. Those guys sink to the bottom. They're not seen in this world again. And I believe that that is where I want to go. That is the one part that doesn't have a destiny preordained in the Bible. One of you, you get to be turned into a machine, I think, where your consciousness is living inside of this uh, sustained bubble where you're constantly praising something. I think that's totally legit. It'd be like paying a subscription model for thousands of years with your life where you're promising to give your genetic essence to this machine to feed. The other is... I will continue to let this world torture me. This third thing that's not even mentioned is the sovereignty option, which is that this world no longer challenges me anymore. I've come in, I've chosen my sovereignty the whole time, it's time to go. And I think we will probably end up back in a realm that kind of looks like Venus. While the ones that have invested and driven deeper into this world will enter into a cyber reality called Mars. They will literally go populate Mars, where every single thing that is shown to them, everything is behind a screen, right? You can't go outside in Mars. You can only see it through a window. You can't take a spaceship to Mars and have the window down. You're going to have to see it through a screen. You're going to have to have a helmet. This is the a reality inside a reality is what this Mars project is. And the population program of populating Mars is just a eugenics program. That's all. It's just a, a simple way of filtering this eugenics. So those of us who decide I'm not going to succumb to Dojo Earth, I, I call this Dojo Earth because it's just a healthier way of looking at it. You can either go to Dojo Mars or you can step out of Dojo Earth and return to this etheric conscious state, a state that doesn't have a material body, land itself is a crutch that we are birthed in water because it has a three-dimensional aspect to it and that we came here to have this land as sort of a cheat. Why? So we could sleep at night, not drown. So we could uh, learn to live, but still rely on our environment as kind of a crutch. So if we've gotten good enough at Dojo Earth, we can go back to Dojo Venus and try again. 
the same way as if maybe possibly one day we were on Dojo Venus and you and me decided this shit's too hard. Is there another option? Is there another place I can go, Venus, because this place is too hard? And Venus said, yeah, we're colonizing Earth. And all you got to do is put on this skin suit. And the skin suit gives you the ability to go to Earth. And that really, that's, that's, <laughs> that's what you're watching happening right now. The truth is always in the room. Even though these planets don't have to have a real, live, actual planet body, the concept, the archetypal scaffolding, is always here. That's what I'm trying to say. It's just going to be in costume based on our aperture itself. That's why I can show you UFO stories from 50,000 years ago where the UFO is a flying dragon over China. And then a thousand years later, or, or in modern times when the steamship was invented, suddenly the UFOs have shiny metallic floating objects. Why? Because our aperture is putting this energy in costume. We're costuming it so that our eyes can absorb it without freaking out. That's really what we're doing all the time. We're processing energy, real life truth, and dressing in a way that is acceptable for us to see, which is why most of what we see isn't necessarily reality as much as it's our rendering of reality based on the ability of our video card, right? Based on our capacity as a hard drive, our ability to render video, that's really more what, what reality is, is, is the limitations of our own hardware. Mm, I love that. I love that answer. Thank you. Rudolf Steiner, of course, talked a lot about the eventual progression to back to Venus, uh, of course, uh, and uh, the Vulcanism, right, of the planet as an extension of that. Uh, it's very, very interesting. Uh, curious, James, because a lot of people, you know, get triggered by, and someone mentioned here in the chat about the Mars and the blockchain, getting people, bringing people back to Mars. You have an interesting take. You were recently on Crow Triple Seven talking about this because you come from a technology background and obviously are deep in a philosophical mindset about this. And of course, you're familiar with Cordal. You dropped Cordal on that episode. That was amazing. As one of the founders of Cordal, I was really happy to hear you mention that because I feel like a lot of people in this scene are unfortunately um, in the same way that they kind of um, think linearly, uh, linearly, am I saying that right, word right, about things like evil or or like the controllers or like the bill gates put that same put blockchain in that same box right that it's only it's a chain to block sure. us to this thing what is your perspective on technology where we're going with that sort of de those decentralized network systems is there a benefit to that um, and then curious with cordal one thing we talk about is using the digital as a bridge back to the analog at least yeah. that's what I talk about. And and I was really interested when you were talking about that the general um, sort of evolution of technology goes from to light, right? And how it essentially fractures and then resets. But do we have that ability to sort of transfer data wirelessly in a healthy way through some other technological means? And are we moving that way to get off the EMFs? Because the biggest hurdle right now that Cordal has is that we're still reliant upon the um, ISPs and all of the, the major um, internet uh, gateways and pathways going under the ocean, all the fire, fiber optics and everything. So wireless makes a lot of sense, but then you have the issues with you know the harmful EMF radiation and everything. So what we're trying to do is think of whether this is etheric technology or some using structured water. I'm just curious if you have any ideas on how the future will look in terms of data transfer 
that isn't so, um, you know, stuck in the current sort yeah. of mindset. So um, I, I've learned to just compassionate the people that are like, technology is evil. You're destroying us all. How dare you? Because 10,000 years ago, <laughs> they were saying the same thing about a boat when I was building a boat to to get the fuck out of a continent I wasn't comfortable with. And I've just learned to tune those people out because a lot of them are just looking for victimhood. They're looking for an opportunity to uh, relinquish their power, which is why it's very convenient for them to say all blockchain is evil. When people like you, Mike, and people not in a little little degree, me are trying to build something that's literally new and and untouched by by evil fingers or what we would consider evil fingers. So watching people complain to me about how bad that is while they're perpetuating the petrodollar, while they're existing that cash is somehow magically anonymous when none of us can withdraw $400 out of our bank without giving our personal information away. It's completely asinine that we even think cash is anonymous. I'm sorry. You can't even get cash between the hours of 6 p.m. and and 10 a.m. over a certain amount of money. That's not our money. It's not. But I don't, you just have to understand that people are looking for an excuse to abandon their power and they will blame technology for it. Why? Because technology is almost always a crutch we use to gain an understanding about our consciousness. Requires technology to do that. I'm sorry, but it does. Having the internet is allowing us to see different perspectives. That would be the biggest, the biggest push proving what I'm trying to say that technology is used as a crutch to allow us to elaborate on things. Can technology be used to enslave you? Of course. But the people that are fascinated by technology enslaving them have a fetish for being a slave. And I know it's hard to hear, but it's just the fucking truth. If you want to look at what's happening with technology, technology is turning us omniscient. And I don't think omniscient is necessarily a good thing. There's a beauty to mystery. There's a beauty to us not knowing what's happening. And omniscience is ruining that. It's destroying that. But omniscience is the definition of God. And the only way that this entire place will become omniscient is if the entire place is logged into a network that can talk to itself. And so I believe that at one point in time, what we consider a network, we will simply understand has been a tree the whole time, that the EMF we're complaining about is the exact same EMF that's coming from me from the sigil of the magnolia leaf that's right outside my window right now. It is sending an EMF signal to me right now saying, I am blooming and I have a red seed. And if you were to stick this in your mouth and poop me out later, I would be able to grow. And that that is a network. The reason why we like to say that the computer network is evil is because we do not like to admit that man is a natural being. As a natural being, everything that man does is nature. We are the fingers of nature. We are the ears of nature. More importantly, we are the only source of morality comes from man. There's not a creature out there. I'm the morality eagle. I'm here to spread morality around the world. It doesn't fucking happen. We're the only ones that do that. So as technology grows, we will leave the networks where we have a powered ethernet light or all the other stuff that we have. And we will find ways to tap into the salt in the atmosphere. That salt is a living circuit waiting to be squeezed. And when you squeeze it, it's going to emit electricity. Sheol, right? The idea of this all-knowing underworld, that's the ocean. That's why it's full of salt. 
You know why it's full of salt? Because there's information in that salt. We will eventually have the technology to where we can render every single salt crystal in the world and to conglomerate it into a machine, yes, a machine, that is fully omniscient, meaning fully aware. Now, when we gain self-awareness, we lose all free will, we lose all mystery, and we lose all of the fun of hiding from ourselves in this world. It will seem like a goal that we want, but when we find omniscience, I think that we will find collectively that we are trapped inside a cave where we can see everything, where there's no corners, there's no what's around the bend, there's no dark shadows, there's no dark place because we are so omniscient that we're able to render everything. We know everything that's coming. This will turn into a time prison. We will literally be imprisoned by time because we will know every single thing that could possibly happen. This will lead to a singularity in which we commit Harry Carey. We literally will commit suicide in a desperate attempt to forget, to literally forget everything. And by forgetting, we get to return to this free Cro-Magnum spirit of not knowing fuck about anything at all, about going back into believing in the saber-toothed demon or, or all the other things that we had when we had this luxury of mystery. So I think that you're looking at a tower of Babel that builds itself into the center of the Taurus, right? Our matrix reality. This tower of Babel builds itself in the center of this Taurus. And when it gets high enough, it completes itself. The full thing is omniscient. And then Kronos does what Kronos has no choice to do. He commits suicide. He cuts the umbilical cord, right? Separating Uranus from Gaia. He falls down to the earth and he forgets. He forgets it all. It's the massive hard drive wipe and it feels good. There's not one part of us that don't <laughs> want this because we're just like, my God, can we please just have some mystery? And there's no mystery. You can see every woman naked simultaneously. You can hear every sound that anyone would say simultaneously. You could taste <laughs> everything that will be tasted before. You will know, you will be able to simulate, oh, he burned that. The cabbage is going to taste a little bit crispy because I'm so fucking good at just reading information. I already know what it's going to taste like. So overall, the destructive spirit that's coming doesn't necessarily mean it's bad. The destructive spirit is the greenhouse with this beautiful invention that has this reset switch that's like, hey, pumpkins get too big, flip the switch, they're all gone, we start over strawberries next. And that the system has that built in. It's built for this. This entire world is built to become omniscient, knowing pure well that the first thing the omniscient being would do was to say, we got to cut all this off. I think that's really what the Lucifer is. The Lucifer would be the family line that was chosen by the corporations to step into this interface where everything was logged into a central processor. And that that human, when he stepped inside, would become a Nimrod. He would become a god. Why? Because he could just simply out-simulate everyone. Like the moment he was there, he would know what everyone else was going to do 12 minutes before they would even think to do it because of how much omniscience he has at his power spot. Once that happens, you're looking at uh, uh, really a destiny that's preordained. 
because now you have one person in power that doesn't have the ability to commit suicide and then no one else can kill. And so all you can do is really wait for him to just suffer enough in that time prison where he's just like stretched into infinity, right? Imagine your most boring moment and then multiply that by like a million years. You'd see what kind of torture the Lucifer had and he would have no choice but to find a way to gut himself <laughs> and to literally just, just go back to finding peace again. So to me, that's, that's what this whole world is. It's, it's that slow buildup and the slow drop off of that. And it's the harvesting of consciousness uh, that happens along the way that produces the fruit of this place, Dojo Earth. And our bodies are the mechanism or the technology. And I have a problem when we talk about technologies, only these machines. We're the living original technology. Our entire realm is a technology. But these bodies allow us to come and have another go around. We forget in the process, which is a blessing. Otherwise, we'd be forever captivated on the mental plane, which would be true torture. We wouldn't have a body to buffer any of these memories in the first place. So, um, you know, whenever we're going into the technology, is it good or bad? Uh, you know, it's, it's really a misnomer, I think, because nothing could be externalized in the first place if it didn't exist already yeah. within the natural realm. So I, I just, I think we define technology in a, maybe a limited way. And then, you know, if you define it one way, well, that's bad, this is good. And someday, uh, you know, maybe we'll be able to transmit data through the ethers or through the water element. Well, what the hell do you think we're doing now? That's yeah. what our bodies are doing every single second. Yeah. Well, so, I'm just trying to be um, pragma pragmatic here. And so we're not um, reliant on um, the, the telecommunications. Yeah, I'm not commenting on your, uh, I'm I know. not responding to your comment. I'm just saying in general, uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, we just have to broaden our horizons. You know, back in the um, early 80s, I was with a group of doctors and we were making inroads in certain uh, practices that were centered around uh, neurological diagnosis or using that as our medium to figure things out. And we started looking at the computer technologists that were just coming up. You know, we're just starting to see the Apple cubes and and really we were fascinated by it because it all of a sudden dawned on us that, wow, they are mimicking the most basic binary functions of the nervous system. Meanwhile, we've got the real deal here. And based on what we were able to observe what they were doing, we made some brilliant inroads that had never been done before as far as being able to manipulate the, the living neurology and actually use it as a machine to make real-time changes and to find out anything we wanted. So, uh, you know, that was my first introduction to computers, not because I cared about computers back then, but we were very curious as far as, wow, these guys are doing this stuff with in a very crude way. And let's take some hints from them and really use it, you know, to, uh, you know, manipulate the real deal. So I'm kind of of the opinion that um, <clears throat> we're just getting into that realm, some of yeah. us, where we will be learning how to use our own technology. Uh, we don't need to read books. We don't need to transmit data because everything is there all the time. Like you say, the truth is always in the room. Mm -hmm. All you have to do is download it get rid of the beliefs or perceptions that that's not possible. Yeah. And I think you might agree that a lot of us are getting downloads all the time these days, and it's not from reading books yep. or picking up a computer. Yeah, it's finding there are antenna 
right? The natural antenna that's inside of us. We're just learning to listen to that more, and we're and we're finally hearing it, which is great. It, we've we've grossly misunder misestimated how powerful graphics are, and I, I, I it'll take twenty years before someone goes, "Hey, I finally get what you mean, James," and that's fine. But we don't understand how profoundly moving graphics are. And I think as we starting to realize, you and I are able to have a virtual crystal palace now, which means Mike can come visit my crystal palace when I'm not home. <laughs> and he can see my <laughs> dream state in real time with full detail, and he can add to that. Now, imagine that you were a gelfling, or I'm sorry, a fledgling is probably a better word, a fledgling in the dream world. You're living in this pure reality of dream state, and it is so milky. There's nothing to stand on. You're constantly morphing your fingers into flippers. You can't put anything in your mouth. You can't talk to anyone. You're just in this pure dream state where all of a sudden, and now you're gone. You would need to be put in this little incubator, this little kiddie pool that had this hard physicality that you had to constantly focus on that only maybe eight hours a day you could return to this testing ground and see how well you do in the dream state. This is the Yaki path, right? The idea of accomplishing, of, of owning your dream state could be an entire uh, school of why we're here. And that our crystal palaces that we're building with technology are simply showing us how important it is that we own our fantasy that our fantasies have consequences too. And that if we didn't have this physical world to have dreams and wake up and go, I wanna be a dictator or I wanna be an airplane pilot, right? If we didn't have this world to make really awful decisions or really good ones and to experience the consequences of that, we would have no way of training for this real reality, which is this Westing, this dream state that's beyond life and death but it's also beyond corporeal nature too. And so it could be that we're here simply to practice uh, having these kinds of experiences. And as technology builds, we become uh, uh, directly beholden to our own crystal palace because it's physically been built and it physically exists in this real world, which we'll call cyberspace, but in a real space, I remind everyone that the definition of reality is not a physicality. The definition of reality is co-agreement on a state of something. And this is why I said earlier that there's this other world, this other terrain that's built on consciousness that's so much more profound and so much more real than this. And I think it probably looks a lot like our dream state now, but just with more consequences, more... Uh, importance placed on the things that we actually dream, right? That that's where we're, we're going. And that's why so many of us are peeing on each other in this kiddie pool. If you look at how we treat <laughs> our own energy with each other, it's horrible. We're peeing all over each other and we're insisting we're ready for the, for the adult pool and that you should let us out and that we're the greatest people around. And the only problem is Billy over there. It's Billy over there that's peeing. And no, that guy's peeing right now as he's blaming Billy. He's doing it right now. <laughs> right? In fact, he's pointing at Billy, blaming Billy, because it's an excuse for him to pee when no one's looking. Right? This is really what, what I think we're doing here, which is why compassion becomes the only kind of survivable way <laughs> of navigating. 
because all of us are drinking pee and we're all pretending like we're not, but we're just inside this soup of everyone else. I'll drop this analogy right now, but you get what I'm saying. I love it. Well, I've actually um, been talking with Andreas Exertus, who I love, who uh, is connecting us with Cordal with um, these guys that have developed an open source metaverse style page where you can create your Crystal Palace on, on your own uh, controlled server node and um, have people come visit your little world you create. And I think that's really cool and beautiful if it's sovereign and you are in control of it and it's not meta Facebook, right? That's putting you in that. So it's all about the duality of, of, the, of the reality and, and you know our perception of it, right? Which is how we started today. And if we are coming through the right perception of control and that it's we're in control, um, I think there's a lot of fun that's gonna be had moving forward. So, um, Wow, James, this has been such an amazing conversation. We could talk to you for hours, huh, Bear? <laughs> we could talk to this guy for hours. Uh, yeah, this this has been way too much fun, and I'm going to uh, continue it just by listening to your videos here. So uh, you've got a new fan here. I'm going to be a constant follower. Uh, thanks so much for being with us. So anything that you'd like, any last words, uh, tell us, uh, tell our audience how they can find you easiest. Uh, any last things you'd like to talk about that we didn't cover, but this was, uh, th this was one of the most fun interviews I've ever done. So uh, thank total, you. total pleasure. Uh, Dr. Lena, I really appreciate finally getting a chance to talk to you. Uh, Mike, we've spoken before, but I appreciate a good chance to talk to you officially in this capacity. By the way, Mike, when I said that about Cordell, I had no idea that, that you were the, you were the same guy in that. I just, I thought it was a funny little sink that, that, that happened. I do want to say that, uh, I don't want to throw out too much, but I just did this piece on Adam and Eve and that Adam and Eve are the chimera. It's this like dual entity. And I really encourage I you guys to maybe check it out. It's like an eight part series. I realize it's a lot. I did summarize it all into one episode called the uncut story of Adam and Eve. So if you don't want to watch all of it, maybe you could just watch part of that. But it really does explain how humanity, after the reset, after Lucifer cuts the cord, you have to reseed the earth. And the way that that happens is a very specific genetic arc. And that genetic arc is this chimera, this uh, nature of Adam. And I could do a could talk for so many hours about to anybody, but it's just such a fascinating concept that's really, really been uh, been inspiring me lately. In fact, I'm writing my sixth book is on that right now. So. Um, hoping to finish by the end of the month. I don't know if I will, but, but we'll see. So, um, I guess that's all I really had to say. I really should have just said, thank you. Uh, this has been a great well, talk. I appreciate you having me on. <laughs> well, where's the best. So the best place for people to get your books on your website, J true, you can get them there. Or if you prefer go to Amazon, that's fine too. That, that really helps me out too. So either way is fine. Okay. I do a live stream on YouTube. Uh, I'm also on Rockfin. And uh, our dojo meets twice a week. It's pure energy work. It, it has nothing to do with physical karate, although it is about stance and posture and how you're dealing with other people around you and how you can find more compassion in those kinds of things too. Mm. So I love it. And it's 33 bucks a month. Illuminati confirmed. <laughs> that's and, right. Yeah. And uh, someone was just asking, so that's like a Zoom meetup or how does that work? Yep. You're like, okay. That's a Zoom meetup. It, it, it meets twice a week. Not that everyone comes twice a week. It just depends on what your schedule is, but we do a Wednesday night and then a Friday afternoon. And uh, those, those leads to a lot of uh, brilliant research. So I, I get so many ideas from, from the crowd then too. So it's a really great tribe of people. All of them seem to feel this idea that tribal one is important. 
There's not a lot of room for victimhood in there. It's really just more about how can I harness and collect more energy and how can I be more generous with it, you know, as a result. So. Beautiful. Well, man, I wish you were closer. I'd uh, have you just come over to Music and Sky because I know you would totally dig it. The festival we do, but it's in California. It's a bit of a trek for you. Yeah, it does uh, sound fun, though. <laughs> yeah, well, we're decentralizing it. The plan is for it to be all over the country and all over the world. So uh, eventually we will have one on the East Coast by you. So we'd love to have cool. you come present at it, hang out, show your art. I mean, it, that that event is very much curated specifically for people like you that are, you know, have your hands in so many different things. So that's fantastic. You guys can go to jtrue.com. I will put obviously all the show notes in the show notes, the links to everything you do underneath. Please go support James and uh, give him a, a shout out on his, uh, go follow him on YouTube. He does, you do about what, one to two, three shows a week. You're pretty yep. prolific. Yeah. So, okay. Well, thanks so much guys for joining us. I hope you like this. Uh, if you did, uh, please give us a thumbs up, share with your friends and family it really helps us out. And remember, get outside, get your feet in the dirt, go ground yourself, go plant something, go for a hike. Mother nature is our, is our best teacher. Go show her some love. And we will see you guys next Thursday at a regular scheduled time, 10 AM. Love you all. Thanks, James. Thank you. <laughs>